0: All right. Good morning, church. It is great. that You guys might want to stay standing. It's going to be like Simon says in here. I'm going to have you stand back up in a minute. We're going to to pray before we do anything else. God, you are so good. We thank you just for this team that came and just led us to your throne. Father, help us to believe what we sing, not to just sing songs, just because it's a part of a worship gathering. But Father, let us believe those things about you. Let us believe those things about you, Jesus. And God, right now, Lord, I just ask you you remove me out of the way. You'll speak through me. It'll be your words, not mine. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now you guys can be seated. I'm going to have you stand back, back up, though, in like literally two minutes, but it's cool. Um, so good morning. And those of you watching on Facebook, good morning. Those of you who don't know me, my name is David Seton. Um, so Corey and I were talking... I don't know. Yesterday, I think, and we don't like. Real, we just always say we're one of the pastors on staff, and. I'm your teaching pastor for today. And so we don't really explain maybe our roles. I'm going to give you this a little snapshot of what we do. Um, I, when we, Some of you know, we merged churches a little over a year and a half ago now. And as that happened, like our roles shifted. We wanted people in their sweet spot, in their right spot on the bus, the right seat on the bus. And so for me, though, yeah, I'm on a preaching rotation with Corey. I also, my main role is executive pastor over missional strategy. So I'm overseeing everything we're doing from local missions to the ends of the earth in Indonesia to make sure that we are on strategically getting the job done that God has laid out for us. And so some of that goes into just keeping in touch with missionaries in Indonesia, looking at the church plants in Fairmont City that we're having meetings about, and looking at how we're going to start residency programs here that we've got up and rolling. So there's just all these different things that fall into what I do, and I just wanted to give you a snapshot of that, of what, we're, what we have going on. What's really cool is the missionaries we support in Indonesia, we can't go to them right now because it's, it's shut down. It's locked down because of COVID. But just in the past month, because of our faithful giving and other churches' faithful giving, they were able to feed over 100 people. I mean, and, and so, like, I mean, that's cool. And, like, you think, oh, okay, big deal, 100 people. Like, guess what? They, they're they not getting any stimulus money over there. Like, they, they, it's shut down, and they don't have any money. So people are, like, literally starving to death. So it's a really cool thing. And so we're just thankful for everything that God is doing. And I am, I'm really excited to be up here to preach. We're in our sermon series, Lest We Turn, if you've been with us. We've been just walking through the Old Testament um, from Joshua, and now we're in 1 Samuel. And I'm in chapter 16 and 17, so you might want to have your Bible open or your phone or whatever you're using today. If you remember last week, Corey was up here and he preached about Saul's sin and how God rejected him as king. He was, there, he was on his way out. Um, I have my sermon written Thursday afternoon. That's always the goal. Get it done by Thursday afternoon. Friday's my Sabbath. Saturday, it's usually not for sermon writing. And then Friday morning I felt God's like, You need to rewrite your sermon. It's like, no, you're you're joking. But um so I took my boys to Taekwondo Friday night, and I, I just sit in the car because COVID stuff, and so I'm just sitting in my car. I brought my backpack with me. I go to reach in to get the iPad out so I can start rewriting it. I didn't have the iPad with me, so I watched um, TV on my iPhone and sat there for an hour and wasted an hour of my life. But then yesterday night, finally, free time comes, and so at 8.30, I start rewriting the sermon. Um, I'm trying to watch the Cardinals game. How many of you guys saw Tyler O'Neill hit the, hit the home run? No? All right. We got some... Did you for real? I was I was like super impressed. For you. I was like, you guys don't watch sports. I mean, all right, cool, whatever. She's distracting me. That threw me off. Um, I was pumped, but I'm, I stayed focused. I, I rewrote the sermon, got up early this morning, and so I'm really excited about like where it's going. And so we are going to break down these two chapters, two really of the most known chapters probably in the Old Testament, if you grew up in church at all. If you didn't grow up in church, I guarantee you've heard about David and Goliath at some point in your life, even if it was like a sports reference, even if you don't watch sports, you probably heard like, oh, this is a David and Goliath matchup. So I am going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to read one verse for the reading of the God's Word. So if you stand with me, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. That's all we're going to read uh, together like this. The Lord said to Samuel... How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You may be seated as a word of the Lord. This is important for us to hear. We're going to break down these whole two chapters, but this is important for us to hear because in the culture, in the, in the climate of our culture that we live in right now, it is absolute chaos. All you have to do is turn on the news, and you will see anything from tens of thousands of people at a border, people dying over in Afghanistan, and you're thinking, like, who is in charge? Who is running this thing? And some of us feel very uncomfortable no matter who you voted for back in November, and that's not where I... I don't really care who you voted for. All I want you to know is that what we see in this text as we kick it off is that the Lord says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. The king was placed there by God, a sovereign God who, who is in control of all things. He's in control of who is ruling. He's in control of who's ruling as mayor of Collinsville. He's in, he's in charge of who's the governor. He's in charge of who's the president. It does not matter the position. He is in control, and he sets up kings and places them where they're at. That doesn't always mean that they're good. It doesn't mean that they're righteous. And it doesn't mean that they're going to make good decisions. But in the end, it will be all to God's glory when he comes back and brings us all home. Okay? So just sit in that. And in Daniel 2, 21, it tells us that in more exact terms. It says that he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So if anything, that should just calm your anxieties and your worries, on some level, just to know, like, hey, God is in control. He was in control with this, and He is in control now in 2021. Nothing has changed, and so let's keep going. We're going to just start breaking this down. And in, in, in verse two, then, in chapter 16, He is told Jesse. He goes, go and to find and anoint the new king. Samuel's nervous. So it says there, he goes, Samuel says in verse two, how can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. So I'm not gonna read all of this, but he's like, you can go. Just, you're gonna take a cow with you, and you're, go, you're gonna make a sacrifice, and they're gonna consecrate themselves, and that's what you're gonna do. And you're not, Saul's not, don't worry about Saul. Just go and do what you do. And so he gets to Jesse But one of the things that God wants him to hear, and this is probably a verse that you've heard if you grew up in church at all, you've probably heard this preach on. The Lord said to Samuel, verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So then Jesse has called all his sons together, and one by one, the Lord's like, nope, not him. Nope, not him. All these men would have been of bigger stature, of better maybe appearance to be a king, just like what we saw with Saul because he was taller than everyone else in Israel. He was powerful. He, was, he had that kingly look. But God says, no, this time we're not, we're not playing that game. I'm not giving Israel a king that looks the part. I'm giving them a king who has the right heart. And so he gets... David, and that's who ends up being king. But if you grew up in church, you've heard this preached on, you've heard this taught that this shepherd boy would become king, that, that his appearance wasn't relevant. And the thing is, if we really have to hit on this idea of he was a shepherd. If you remember anything of the Bible, shepherds, their testimony was not even valid in court, okay? They are dirty, stinky people. Like he wasn't rolling around like with a bunch of money just doing whatever he wanted. He was a shepherd boy. And God is saying, don't look at his outward appearance. Look at him for his heart and who he really is. And the problem is we don't do that in America. We do not do that. If anything, we don't even do it with not just people, but with organizations, because if you rolled up to this church on a Sunday morning, you look at this building and think, well, where are all these cars going to go, and where are all these people going to sit? And if we're honest as a staff, we don't really know. God just keeps doing things. Like, we're like, huh, wow, more people fit and more cars. It's like the fish and loaves, people. (laughs) Like, we don't really get it. But God's not worried about a building, and he's not worried about parking lots, and he just keeps saying, this is, if their heart's right and they're obedient, we're going to keep doing what God has called us to do. And so for us, as Americans, we cannot get into this spot where we have to look a certain way, act a certain way, talk a certain way, have the right hobbies, because what we've done then is what we're honestly saying is that we hope people will approve of us. Then we have an approval idol that we want people to approve of us because of how we act and talk and look. But then deeper, what we're really saying is we're hoping that God approves of us by the way that we act and talk and look and what we do. And what that really is, that's moralistic, therapeutic deism. All right? Now stick with me. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. You're saying, yes, I agree there is a God, but I have to act a certain way so that he will accept me. And then the therapeutic part is that makes me feel good about myself. That makes me feel good about myself because, I mean, I only cuss when I stub my toe, and I, you know, I'm, I read the, the story, Action Bible, with my kids at night. Cool. That doesn't mean you're saved, okay? Like, that doesn't make you saved because you don't do things you used to do. That's just moral deism, saying, like, if I act a certain way, some God will accept me. Christian Smith, an author, defines it as this. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life here on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when there's a problem that needs resolved. And then five, good people go to heaven when they die. None of those things are true. None of them. And what it is, it's not even a rejection of there being a God because moral therapeutic deism is saying, I agree there is a deity, there is a God, but I don't agree with anything that the Bible really says about that God. So that is a rejection of the true God and of the true gospel. And so we... As Americans who are very focused on appearance and what we do, we have to, like, take a verse like this and not just hear it like, oh, yeah, we look at the heart, not outward expressions. Yeah, we do. We do it all the time because we're sinners. We have to get away from that, though, because God is serious about our hearts. He cares about if you're genuinely in an intimate relationship with him, not that you can play the part for an hour and a half on Sundays. All right, and now you just notice I said an hour and a half because we're going to be here a bit. <laughs> but let's bump on, okay? So this next section, like he has found David. It says there, he says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send, get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And when he showed up, it says, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint, for, anoint him, for this is he. Okay, so in verses 13 through 15. I think it's going to be on the screen. Yep, it's going to be on the screen. This is what he says. Arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So this is what happens. David has been anointed with oil by by Samuel. He is now officially king over Israel. At the same time, so I don't know if this is like at the exact same moment in, in time, it's two separate locations. Bam, the spirit of God is on David. The spirit of the Lord is away from Saul, and an evil spirit hits him. I don't know. It doesn't say, but it says now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So it, pretty much close to each other, some things are happening, God is moving, and who's going to be king? And here's some things I want us to notice. The anointing with oil was symbolic of the anointing of the Spirit of God. Okay, the, the oil didn't mean anything Is an act of obedience that Samuel is doing what he was told to do, and the Spirit of God is now on him. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon people to equip them for a specific task. Okay, right, it's not the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in them, as we do now have as believers but it was for a specific task, to rule, to prophesy, to, build, to rebuild a city. And so both Saul and David had the spirit provided for them so they could rule and have authority to rule over Israel. But see, the removal of God's spirit from Saul does not mean a removal of Saul's salvation. The Bible is not clear about that. Originally, when Saul was anointed king, it says that God changed his heart. Okay, Only God can change a man's heart. If you're in here and you're a born-again believer, God has changed your heart. So nowhere does it say that Saul is no longer a Christian. It's not clear. It wouldn't have been Christian in that context of the Old Testament. But what we do know is that he had a removal of his ability and authority to rule, which we'll see a complete deterioration of his rule coming forward in the next few weeks. In verse nine, it says, or where it's going with that is 1 Samuel 10, 9. It tells us that God changed Saul's heart. So if you want to look that back up, you can see that. Now, David, in his... Later years, once he's ruling as king, if you have some Bible background, you know he's sinned and pretty bad. Like, takes a dude's wife, has that dude killed so he can clear that mess up. Like, he's not always following and doing the things that he's supposed to do, but he is a man after God's own heart. Now, here's the deal. And Psalm 51, 12, he prays and asks God to restore the joy of his salvation. Not to restore his salvation, but to restore the joy of his salvation. Because if you're here, I guarantee you there has been a time in your life where you forgot the joy that you felt from your salvation where you're sitting more just kind of just empty feeling and nothing's there, you're just kind of mundane, like something's missing in my life. Well, a, just pray and ask God to restore this, the joy of your salvation because there is definitely joy that comes in knowing that you are saved and you're a son or daughter of the living God. Now, Jesus, at his baptism, he is anointed king. There's no oil, but he, when he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit, it descends on him like a dove, and he is anointed king then. That is his um, proclamation there that he is king, but the spirit will never depart from him because he sends his spirit to us. He is king forever. So when God saves us, we're not just anointed with the spirit, but we're given the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. We need to remember that, that like that's not something that departs from us, it doesn't leave us. Now we can reject it, we can do some things, but we'll never lose our salvation, but we may miss out on what God is trying to do in us. So David has been anointed king. The spirit of God is upon him and has departed Saul. And this evil spirit now is tormenting Saul. We're not sure exactly what that means, but what we do know is that God is sovereign. He does not cause people to sin. He does not um, tempt people to sin, but he will use all things and everything to his glory. And he has now sent an evil spirit to torment Saul for whatever reason that God saw fit. And we just have to understand and accept that God is sovereign and he's in control. And so this is good. All right? Like, that's just it. And so he's there. And now we have to think about this. Saul is like the quasi-king. He's not king, but yet he's operating as king because David's not came into rule yet. And David's got to wait. Like, he knows he's king, but this is what happens next. Saul's servants, it says there in verse 16, it says, Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who's skillful in playing the lyre. And when a harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. I don't know how this works, but, like, if any of y'all play the lyre and I'm in a bad mood, come over to my house. All right? That'd be cool. I want to try it. But, so, they find David. Of course, it'd be David, right? He plays the lyre. He takes care of sheep. He kills lions. He kills bears. He kills Goliath. And he's obviously a musician. So... (laughs) He gets there. This guy, he's king. He is the anointed king. And he has to sit and play the lyre for the fake king to calm him down. Like, Think of how humbling that would be. And and then if you keep going down in verse 22, Saul sent to Jesse saying, "'Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight.' And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him." The spirit would only depart from Saul if God so desired for it to depart. So it wasn't David's playing. Again, it was God at work through David, which is going to be the theme we see through this whole text. Is that God works through ordinary people doing ordinary things. And so the spirit would leave. And so David, though, he was king. Had to wait a long, long time. In the weeks to come, you'll see he is still waiting to become the actual operating king of Israel and he's sitting there playing music for the former king. See, God's called each and every one of us to do something. He has prepared good works for us to walk in before time even began, it tells us in Ephesians 2. But here's the reality of it. Sometimes you're not gonna get to walk in those works in the time that you want to walk in them, okay? Like, you're not gonna just get to go do what you want whenever you want. Sometimes you're gonna do some pretty humbling things. You're gonna have to serve in ways that you didn't really see that you should have to serve. Maybe you think it's under you, to have to do, maybe you're like, hey, I don't, I don't think I should have to be out here pulling weeds. I don't think I should have to be here scrubbing toilets on a Thursday. Like that's, I'm above that. No, no, you're not. You're not above it. Like, and God may call you to that for a season because He's preparing you for something bigger. He was preparing David for more. But right now, He's going to sit there and play the lyre. And so, wherever you're at in your life, you have to realize that God is preparing you for something. You may be in the, in your sweet spot right now, doing exactly what you want. But you might be here, and you're like. Man, I'm serving, but I don't really know what to do. Like this isn't really what I thought I was called to. Some of you aren't serving at all, and that's a whole another sermon, okay? So we'll we'll get to it. So God doesn't call us to do his will though for our glory. He calls us to do his will for his glory. that's what the gospel calls us to do. It calls us to die to ourselves and not to elevate us, but to elevate him and point people to him. So you're probably never going to play music for a king while he's getting tormented by an evil spirit. And if you do, you should write a book um, because you will have quite the story. But what we need to know is that there's going to be times we're going to have to do things that we don't want to do. But the reality is that our identity in Christ drives our behaviors. So when we understand our identity in Christ, when we really understand that we're a son or daughter of God, and that is driving who we are, our behaviors will flow out of that. And so if you have to do something you think maybe is under you, which is probably not, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay because you know you're doing it for God. See, identity drives our behaviors. But before we even just sit in that for a second, last week as Corey talked about just being with God, um, saying that you're limited, which some of you guys took to a little bit different extreme, and like, like, well, I'm limited. I ain't doing anything. I, you, you should like that's. We'll get to it. Um, but we do need to be with God so that we can understand our identity in God, which then will flow out the acts. A service and work that he's called us to do. So yes, you must be with God. David was most definitely with God a lot. Like you just read through the Psalms and he's there. He's spending time with the Lord and which through that restored and helped him understand his identity. So when we look at David and his being and doing and how it flowed out of really who God was and who's and get David's identity in that then, it wasn't just about him doing what he wanted to do. So David had a deep trust in in the Lord, before he ever became king, he was trusting the Lord. Well, before that, he trusted him from his youth. So now, what happens next is probably really one of the most well-known stories. Like I said in the Bible earlier, it's David and Goliath. And I want to be clear before I even dig into this and go deeper into uh, chapter seventeen, but I'm gonna I'm just gonna give you a little synopsis and then we're gonna hit something on this. So David is done playing the music for, for Saul for a while. And Israel has now went to war. They're, they're battling with the Philistines. And the Philistines' armies, it says there in verse 1 of chapter 17, are gathered together, and they're, they're fighting. And things aren't going well for Israel. And the reason why is because there's a guy named Goliath, a giant, and he is huge, and he is just destroying people, and no one wants to fight him. Like he is there, he's calling out and telling them to send someone to do battle with him. They don't want to send anyone out, and he he just—he just—it's like it's like a game to him. He just wants to fight. Let's see who I can knock out. He's like that ballroom brawler who just goes to the bar looking for a fight. He's ready to go, and so they're just waiting and waiting. And, And David's just out in the field. He's you know got he's tending the sheep, and his dad's like, hey. You need to take some food to your brothers. You need to check on them. You need to see how they're doing and bring a token back with you from them. So a token, like something to show they're still alive. And so David does that, and he kills Goliath. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But here, here's the thing I need you to know. This account of David killing Goliath is most definitely pointing to Jesus and not you and not me. Okay, like let's just move and get that really, really clear right now is that what we're not saying in any form of the way is you're not David and the problem you're facing in your life right now is not Goliath. Okay, it's not. This, you're not the hero of the story. You will never be the hero of the story and you're not meant to be Jesus's. And that is it. Like that's just it. So when we read this, what we have to realize is that this is pointing us to Jesus. This is pointing us to Jesus conquering death and sin, a giant that none of us could slay. Okay? And so when we conquer a problem in this life, it's because God gave you the ability to do so and allowed you to do so. That's the only reason and only way you're going to conquer a problem. And any problem that's bigger than that, which is our sin and death, Jesus conquered through his death, burial, and resurrection. So I want you to fully grasp, though, the whole gospel implications of this text, and it's this, is that imagine with me, we're standing on the shore, maybe in Indonesia, because that's just my plug that you could go with me to Indonesia one day when COVID lets up. We're standing there, and we see a wave coming at us as wide as our eyes can see. It's seven stories tall, and it is coming at us at about 60 miles an hour. There's nothing you can do you can't outrun it. You can't get away from it. This wave is barreling down on us, and we know that our death is surely moments away. But as it comes and it's getting close, it literally the earth the earth opens up, swallows up every last drip of water. Not one speck even hits us. We are dry. What that is is that is how Jesus took on the wrath of God. That His wrath was barreling down on us as sinners completely separated from God. It's barreling down on us, and Jesus steps in our place, goes to the cross, and takes on every last ounce of God's wrath. That's what David did, and it's pointing to Jesus. He's saying, he shows up. All these people are standing over there, afraid, the Israelites of the Philistines, because you got Goliath standing there, who's just ginormous. And he's in the way, and they're they're afraid. They don't know what to do, and he's going to wipe them all out. There is no answer to him. And David, a shepherd boy, shows up on the scene, and he slays this giant. It's all to point us to Jesus. It's all to point us to him. So remember, the only true giant in your life is sin. It's your death and separation from God. So if you're here today and you don't have that taken care of, if Jesus hasn't slayed that in your life, because he's taken care of it on the cross for all people, but it takes place in your faith in him because Jesus is the true hero. David is just a type of Christ that's pointing us to Jesus. Now, that we're clear that you're not David and I'm not David. Well, I am David. (laughs) You get the point. We can dig in. That was a corny... Corny dad joke right there, wasn't it? I didn't even have that one in my notes. That was extra. <laughs> so for those of you that believe in the Bible to be completely inerrant, I want to break down just how big this giant was. So by inerrant, I mean there's no errors in the Bible. It's all true. It's all 100% truth. It talks about his height and cubits and span and shekels and all the stuff, things that we don't measure things with anymore. So Goliath, according to the Bible, is about 11 foot tall. I mean, that dude couldn't even stand in here, okay? These are eight foot ceilings. He would be hitting his head. He had 1,200 pounds of scale like armor on. It's interesting. I don't want to go digging too deep that it's scale like because we're told in Genesis when the sin happens that God tells Satan the snake that from the heel of us, you'll, you'll bruise the heel. Of the seed of, of woman, but he will crush your skull. So it's interesting that Goliath is wearing scale-like, snake-like armor. Like, I think it is, again, pointing to Jesus conquering Satan, sin, and death. And so it's interesting. But he's wearing 1,200 pounds of chain-scale-like armor. None of us in here can even lift 1,200 pounds. This dude's walking around with it on, fighting, in battle. His staff or bow that he has for his spear is taller than him. Okay, and on the end of it is a 135 pound spearhead. That is a lot of weight, folks. Like, like that's no joke. That is, for those of you who lift, that is three 45 pound plates. Like, I, there ain't no way you're walking around with that on a stick and like chucking it at anyone or stabbing anyone. You're not doing it. He had bronze boots and bronze on his legs for armor. This is some heavy stuff, but this guy is so big, it does not phase him. He is undefeated. Like, there's a reason, I want you to see. Like, I think there's such a definition and an understanding of who he is to show that he is undefeated because sin and death is undefeated. And only God can conquer it. And so we needed to see that here because you have the shepherd boy show up and defeats him. And God gets the glory and it points again to Jesus because only sin is defeated when a carpenter from Bethlehem shows up. Like, think about it you got a shepherd from Bethlehem shows up to defeat Goliath. Now we got a carpenter showing up on a scene to defeat sin and death in our place. So Goliath is not only huge, but he's mouthy. He's running his mouth. He says in verse 10 of 17, give me a man that we may fight together. He's calling out to them. He's mocking them. He is not happy. And so David, he's the shepherd king at this point, not really operating king. Like I said, he's taking care of the sheep and his dad says, hey, here's some food. Take it to your brothers and bring back this token. I think it's interesting about David because Saul, when we first meet Saul, what is he? Just, he's he's out looking for his dad's donkeys. He can't even take care of his dad's donkeys; they're lost. He has to go find them, and it shows just how his attitude was. He was doing it on his own. But David, the shepherd boy, shepherd king, was trusting the Lord in taking care and tending to his dad's flock. Now the earthly father is sending him to take care of his brothers to bring them lunch and bring back that token. But really what's happening is his heavenly father is sending him to slay a giant. He's sending him to go slay a giant. So David, the anointed king, is obedient to both his heavenly and earthly father. And he shows up. And then in verse 26 of 17, this is what it says. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should that he should defy the armies of the living God? Think about this. He shows up like if you walked up and you saw an 11 foot dude decked out in his armor like Goliath, you're like, this ain't my problem. (laughs) I was just here to bring lunch. I got sheep. I gotta get back to. I hope to see you guys later. You might, you might want to just retreat, okay? But when David asks this, he's not asking about anything else other than, who is this uncircumcised just dog that is mocking the living God? He doesn't see his identity, because we talk about identity a lot. It's just an individualistic identity. He sees it as a, he is part of Israel, God's chosen people. And the Thing is, is in America, we have trouble seeing it that way because all of us, me included, I would show up on that scene and I'd be like, that's not my problem. I'm going home. And what happens is we have this Western plausibility structure, meaning that we see everything through an individualistic lens. Everything we do is about us and how it makes me better, how it makes me more comfortable. We, even our salvation, which is true in that we are saved as individuals. None of us are riding the coattails of one another to be saved, but when God didn't die for David, he didn't die for just you. He died for his bride, the church, okay? And so when we hear something like this, David didn't see this as an individual thing. He saw this about God's people. David, David was never directly threatened by Goliath, but he realized that because of God's chosen people, he was gonna step up. He was gonna do what he could do only through God, And so he goes up there and he's like, I will fight him. I'm going to fight him. I'm going to do what you've called me to do, Lord. I'll do this. And so for us, that's where we need to be. When we look at things, we have to stop always filtering it through an individual look at what's best for me, what's best for making me feel comfortable, where should I live that gives me the right look. We need to think through what advances the kingdom of God the most. Because our choices in life are usually like, what sports should my kids play that makes my family look good? Like, cause man, like all my friends, all their all their kids are playing select baseball, but like, your kid's really not good enough to play select baseball, but you want them on that team, so you'll spend thousands of dollars to put them on that team just to have a look. Like that's that's an individualistic mindset. Because what it's done is pulled you away from community and church, and time to serve, maybe money to serve and to give. And then we, we pick houses so we can live in certain subdivisions so that we, as an individual, have a look. And we want to make sure that our appearance is right. And we buy certain clothes so that we look a certain way. And what we've done is we've stopped thinking through everything and through a kingdom aspect of, like, what is best for the kingdom? Where should I really live? Where should I, What hobbies should my kids really be in? What hobbies should I be involved in? Am I strategically thinking through everything I'm doing missionally? And when we do that, we can't have an individualistic Western plausibility structure. It has to break down. And the reason it's a Western plausibility structure is this, because every other country in the Eastern Hemisphere, they're thinking through clans and community and very communal base. They're doing things that are best for everybody. But we we don't roll like that here. But we need to think differently within the church. And David did. He saw that, that he had to do something. He had to step up. And so last week when Corey was preaching about just being with the Lord and saying that you're limited, and I told you I was going to get to this, and that you need to have space with Jesus, right? What he didn't mean was for you to take this individualistic look and do nothing. He he didn't say that. That's why we don't give practical application here. We just give gospel application. Like, we're never going to give you three C's to how you can communicate better. Like, if I do, someone should, I don't know, just, I won't preach again if I do that. But here's the thing. like, We're not calling you just to sit and to be and to do nothing. David spent time with the Lord so he understood his identity as a son and his identity as a people of God. And then he acted on it. So yes, you do need to be. And sometimes you are limited in what you can do in different seasons. But at no point have we called you or has God called you just to sit and to do nothing. That's not where it's at. And so David understands that. And so he goes to fight with Goliath. They try to talk him out of it. His brothers are like, what are you doing? They're getting frustrated with him. I mean, their little brother is going to basically shame them and go to war. And then Saul tries to put his armor on David. And David's like, no, that's not mine. I've never tested it. I'm not doing that. And so what we can see with this is this is that be you. Like God has... As a son or as a daughter, God has written your story to go into his bigger story. He hasn't written you to try to play me. He hasn't written you to try to play Corey in the story. He has written your story and prepared good works for you to walk and stop trying to be someone else that you're not. Just allow God to walk through you. David saw He's like, I'm not taking that. I'm a shepherd. I've got my bag, my pouch, I've got my staff and I've got five smooth stones. And he rolls up and they have this exchange and I the dude's bold. Like, he's bold. This is what he says in 1745-47. through Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. For this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. He is saying, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to chop off your heads, and the birds are going to pluck out your eyes and eat your flesh. That, is not, that part's not taught in Sunday school, guys. He's like, like, David hit him in the head with a stone, he died. No, he, he didn't just hit him in the head. He cut off his head with a sword. And he said, I'm going to let you lay there, and the, the birds in the air are going to eat the flesh, because then everyone is going to know, to the glory of God, that I didn't need anything but him to get this done. And so he nails the dude in the head with a stone, pinpoint accuracy. Like, this is God. I mean, like, who, who's sitting around practicing with a slingshot? Like, really? Like, he hits him in the head, and he has won this battle. He cuts off his head. He takes it back to camp, and he is, he's the hero now. In that moment, but really, again, it's pointing to Jesus. And so David took action to do what he was called to do. His job title might have changed from shepherd boy to shepherd king, but his job description never changed. It was still to tend to the flock. His flock used to be his earthly father, and now it's his heavenly father's flock. And he was doing what he was called to do, because when we look back up here, when he's arguing why he could go and do this in verse 35... And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He is saying, hey, I'm tough. I can beat up a bear or lion or Goliath with a staff and some stones. He's saying, God's got this, and I'm going to have faith, and I'm going to go. And so for us, what we have to understand is there is not a whole lot, honestly, that we're skilled enough to do on our own to advance the kingdom of God. Sometimes we act like we are, but God has got it. And if we go in obedience, he's going to take care of What we really have to do. And so that's why when we say, like, yes, you are limited, but when you're limited, it's so that you can slow down, hear what God has to say to you, and then go and do what He's called you to do. So I want you to stop for a second. I want you to focus on this. And really, as we start to wrap this up, that David didn't win this victory, Jesus did. Jesus won this victory. Christ is the victor, He's our champion. He has stood between us, just as David has stood between Israel and Goliath. But Jesus conquered death and sin, and he's reigning still on the throne of David. Like, there's a reason why David became king. It's because from his lineage, his kingdom, his throne would reign forever because of Jesus. And so for us here today, like I'm asking, do you, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has conquered death and sin, that he is the champion, he is the ruler of all things? Because if so then we need to understand that we belong to him. In verse, the end of the chapter there, in verse 56, or 58, my bad, it says this. I want you guys, we're going to wrap up, so you stand with me. I want you you to hear this. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethelmite. I want to ask you right now, whose are you? Whose are you? Are you a son or daughter of the living God? Because if so, then we get to respond to that through song, through worship, through hearing the word preached, and then now through communion to say, I am a son, I'm a daughter of the living God. He has saved me. He has conquered death and sin that I could not conquer in my place. See, Jesus, he took time he did. He took time to, to be with the Lord. He knew he was limited. He would go and refill himself in the garden. You need to do that too, but you need to know who you are and then go and act and understand that God has called you to do things. We may not always look the part, but God is going to take care of it all. And so right now, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to read some scripture about communion. And I just want you to think about who's you, who's, who, who do you belong to? What is your identity? Is it truly found in Christ, or have you placed it in something else? And maybe you need to repent if you're a believer because you've placed it in something else. Maybe you've never placed your identity in Christ, and today you need to do so. So let me pray. God, thank you for just such an amazing portion of your word. That we can look at it and we can see Jesus through it all that we can see how you, through Jesus, conquered death and sin to your glory so that we may be reconciled to you and not separated from you. Because in all honesty, Lord, we're no better than Goliath. And so, God, I pray, Lord, as you've done this for us, God, that we will place our trust in that, that we don't have to put on an act, that we don't have to put on a show, that we don't have to act a certain way to earn favor with you, Lord, that you are a true God and King who reigns, and you love us and want a relationship with us. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that you will move in their hearts, and they will confess you as their Lord and Savior. So, God, I just pray now that you'll move, and we'll respond. In Jesus' name, amen. This is what Paul writes concerning communion. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you,